Well, hello, welcome. Glad to have you here. If you're new, my name's Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, just glad that you're joining us. Uh, just before we jump into uh, the, the Word of God today, I just want to take a moment and talk to those of you who are reading through the Bible with us this year in 2022. We began on January 2nd, and now it's like the end of the month, and this is kind of a critical time when it comes to reading through the Bible for a year, because this is the time, at least in my life, when I get tempted to kind of kind of drop it. It's not new anymore, and it's taking time, and, and I just want to encourage you, this is the time to keep going. You know, if you're behind a few days or maybe a week, you're not too far behind. Just catch up and let's just keep going. And by the end of February, this is just going to be like a habit in our life. And it's going to be rich and helpful. And so I just want to encourage you because I just know the temptation at this time. Uh, let's keep going. And, and if you're reading, uh, if you're following along on paper, you need to know that in, this, in the lobby this week, uh, there will be available uh, uh, the, the next month's reading and just stop by, pick that up or contact the church and we'll get it to you. But we just want to encourage you, let's just keep going. Let's just, let's just keep reading together. All right. Well, let's turn, uh, let's turn to the Word of God again today. We are today ending our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, we started uh, in, back in September in chapter 1 where we read about how the people of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians. And not only that, but that Pharaoh had instituted this, this policy of genocide, of killing the newborn baby boys. And we read about how the people of God cried out to God and how he heard their cry and how he came to rescue them. And now, now in Exodus chapter 15, that's exactly what has happened. God has done exactly what he said he would do. The people of Israel have been freed from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea and now they stand on the other side on the shores. And the question is, how do they respond? How, how do they celebrate? And the answer is, they sing a song. It's a song of worship. In fact, uh, worship tells us, or the songs of the people have tells us a lot about who they are. Daniel, Daniel Block, who writes and teaches about music and worship, he writes this. He says, it seems nothing defines a people like its music. The music may be as plain as rubbing a stick rhythmically across a corrugated surface, or as complex as a ballet by Tchaikovsky. People are what they sing. If we would understand a culture other than our own, we should start not by reading essays about it by so-called objective observers, but by listening to the music, feeling its rhythms, and hearing the story of its poetry. You know, the, the music that a people sing tells us a lot about the people, about, about what they love, about what they value, about what they, about what they worship. And, and the people of Israel have a rich history of singing music. In fact, if you read through the scriptures, start looking for it, you'll see it all over the place. They, they sing in, in all of their lives, in everyday lives. I mean, they sing, you'll see there's places in the scriptures where they sing while they work, while they tread, uh, while they tread grapes, where they harvest their crops, uh, when they're cooking meals or digging irrigation ditches or digging wells. And they sing songs of celebration. They sing when they're planting vineyards and after shearing the sheep, they sing at weddings and at the coronation of kings and on pilgrimages. And of course, like every, every people around the world, they sing about love. I mean, the greatest, one of the greatest love songs ever written is recorded in the scriptures. It's the Song of Solomon. But not only that, I mean, they use songs in all kinds of other ways. The prophet Isaiah uses a song to taunt those who are drunk. And Job, he, he complains, he says, how is it that that, that while the innocents suffer, the children of the wicked sing songs and dance and make music. There's songs sung about affluence and songs sung about futility. 
Military leaders in the Bible use instruments to, to encourage their, uh, their, their troops. And when they're victorious, they sing songs. And when you look, there are songs of lament, songs of, of sadness and sorrow and loss. Music permeates the life of the people of Israel, much like it does our culture and, and most other cultures. But the song we're going to look at today, the, the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, is the very first recorded place in all of history where a song is sung in worship to God. So that means it's got a lot to tell us about singing songs in worship to God. So let me read for you this song of Moses, what he writes, Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And then we'll talk about what it means for us. This is what it says. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You've led your steadfast love. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants, inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. He goes on to say this, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has thrown into the sea. It's an amazing, it's an amazing song of worship to God. And there's a great deal for us to learn about what it means to sing songs in worship to God. So let's start back here in verse 2. Here's, how, uh, here's what Moses says. He says this, The Lord is my strength. And my song, he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Here's the first thing you need to know. That's this, worship flows from a personal relationship with God. 
Moses begins this song of worship. He says, this is, this is my worship to God. This is a personal thing for me. He says, this isn't some, some, some ceremony that I'm just part of. This isn't some ritual that I just have to do to get on with my life. He says, no, no, no. What I'm doing here is deeply personal. It's about this relationship. It's about communing with God and rejoicing in what it is that he has done for me. See, worship, true worship, flows out of a deep, personal relationship with God. So that means that if you're finding it hard to worship, if you're finding worship that you do kind of stale and, and kind of cold, you know, a lot of it has to do with your personal relationship with God. A lot of it has to do with how your personal relationship with Jesus is. And I, I know, I know about that. I mean, I have spent most of my life following Jesus. I've spent years in worship services and, and sometimes Sometimes it just feels cold and, and kind of distant. But that's not the fault of the worship. That's, that's my heart. I mean, it's a little bit like marriage. It's a little bit like marriage. You know, sometimes I'm so excited to see my wife. I just love being with her. And other times, I'm not so excited. I, I feel kind of cold and a little bit distant. But the thing is, same wife. The exact same wife. So the difference, it turns out, has to do with the kind of energy that I've put into that relationship. Often I find that when I'm kind of cold and distant, it's because I got distracted. I got busy on other things, and I just haven't invested in that relationship like I should have. But when I invest deeply, man, I'm excited to see her. We, we, we're doing good together. And that's how it is in worship, too. It's the same song or a similar song. And sometimes we just really connect, and other times not. But so much of it has to do with how we're doing personally in our walk with Jesus. So if the worship for you is cold, if it feels kind of distant, the question for you is this, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your relationship with Jesus? Where do you need to, to press into that relationship, to grow more, to, to focus on him? Because it'll make a huge difference in how you worship. It's the first thing we notice. But the second thing to notice from this, from this song that Moses sings is that it also is very corporate. Worship is a corporate thing. It's meant to be done together with others. Look at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Look, this was not, this wasn't Moses with his guitar off in the corner, kind of strumming away and sort of singing this little song to God. No, no, no. This was a song sung by a nation. This was a song sung by hundreds of thousands of people lifting their voice together in worship to God. I mean, wherever it was that they sang this song, it must have been so powerful and so beautiful. It must have just rung out. It must have roared with the praises of God's people. You know, there's something so powerful about a group of people gathering together in a place to worship God. You know, I know people. I know people who knew nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, and someone invited them to church. And they came in and they sat in church. And, and before the preacher got up and said a word, before a word was out of their mouth, they sat and they experienced the power and the beauty of people worshiping. And with tears running down their cheeks, they said, I don't know what this is, but whatever these people have, I want it. Corporate worship is important. It's powerful. It, and that's why, that's why we continue to encourage people to come and to, to join together, embodied on a Sunday morning, to, to gather in the same place to worship. And of course, 
you know, you're watching this o- online and, and I totally understand that. It's COVID and, and health and safety is of utmost importance. And for some people, it's a question of mobility and, uh, and health. So there's no judgment. If you're watching this at, at home on your computer, no judgment at all. But the fact of the matter is, and you probably know this, if you've worshipped in, in person with a bunch of people, the, the worship is all richer and deeper and more meaningful than just at home by your, by your computer. And again, please keep, if this is the way, please keep doing no judgment here. But God's design for worship is that it's done together, that it's done corporately together. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about worship. Because it is deeply personal and yet at the same time so rich when it's done together, with a group of other people, it means that there will always be some tension in exactly how it is that we go about worshiping. You can't tell me, you can't tell me that of the hundreds of thousands of people who sang this song on that day with Moses, that there wasn't a group of them that frankly didn't really love this song. I mean, it just, it just is how it is. I mean, think about your own group of friends. I think about my group of friends. I've got good friends. But even among my friends, and this is, I mean, this boggles my mind, but even among my friends, there are some that don't love country music. I I, I can't understand it. Who who wouldn't love country music? And and one of my friends, he's a good friend of mine, and hard to believe this, but one of my friends actually genuinely loves rap music. Man, caused me to question my friendship with him for a second. I mean, that's just a small group of friends. Imagine in a church of hundreds. Imagine in a nation of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. It just is how it is. Among the Israelites who sang this song on that day, there would have been those who said, this song is too long. It's too long. And maybe you felt that. I mean, maybe even as I was reading this song, halfway through, you kind of tuned out. You're like, good, but it's too long. I, I can't keep up with it all. There were others who would have said of this song, it repeats itself way too often. I mean, Moses, I mean, he, he sings about the sea in verse 1, and again in verse 4, and again in verse 5, and he sings about it again in verse 8 and in 10. I mean, I get it, I got it. Pharaoh's guys drown in the sea. Don't just sing about that. And there would have been other people who said, this whole song, and not a single word about the, the plagues, these amazing signs that God did in Egypt that set us free. I mean, not even the Passover. He doesn't even talk about the Passover. And others would have read this song or sang this song and said, Edom, Canaan, Philistia. I mean, we haven't even got to these places yet. Why are we singing about these places? And all that before we even get to the music style. I mean, we don't know what style of music Moses set this song to, but he would have had to set it to his style. I know, was it jazz, classical, rock, pop, barbershop quartet? I mean, we don't know, but he would have had to pick something. And no matter what he picked, no matter what he picked, there would have been a group of people who said, yeah, don't love it. And this song was written by Moses and inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. See, here's, here's what I want to point out. Because worship is both deeply personal and it should be deeply personal but also because it is powerfully corporate and it should be powerfully corporate. There will always be, 
There will always be a tension around the worship that we sing in a corporate setting. It just is. Millenniums ago, it was no doubt tension and has remained all through history, a tension for the people of God. It's a human thing, which means you won't love every song that we sing at our church. In fact, not every song that we sing at church is my personal favorite. And in fact, not even every song that we sing is Pastor Seth's personal favorite. Because in the end, our singing is not about our own personal musical preferences. It's about joining corporately to worship God. Now, of course, you know, that doesn't mean that we sing any and every song. The songs must be theologically accurate and true. And of course, all week long in your car, on your phone, in your house, I mean, listen to whatever type of worship or whatever style of worship song that you would like to sing. But when we come together to worship, when we come together to worship, by its very nature, because it's corporate, it requires us to put aside some of our personal preferences and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how it works. And in the end, our singing, our worship to God through music is about celebrating what it is that God has done in our lives. Corporately, it's, it's about celebrating his salvation for us. And, and that's what Moses hits right off the top. Here's what he says in verse 1. He says this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. When he says, I will sing, when he says, I will sing, that could also be translated as, I must sing. I have to sing. I can't help but sing of what God has done for me. James Boise, pastor, he says this, music is a gift from God that allows us to express that allows us to express our deepest heart's desires uh, towards God, uh, sorry, our deepest heart's response to God and to his truth in meaningful, memorable ways. He says it's a way that we join our heart with what we know in our head and say, yes, God, yes, 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 to who you are and what you've done. I mean, true worship, it just sort of wells up out of us. C.S. Lewis, he kind of wrestled with this. He couldn't understand it always. He, He said this, he said, when we experience something beautiful or amazing, we, we have this almost uncontrollable urge, this, this instinctive need to praise it and to bring others in and to have them praise it too. It's like, it's like this. It's, it's like if you're watching a football game. I mean, you're watching your team playing their arch rivals, and at one point there's this, this beautiful play. I mean, it is just, it is just brilliant in every way. You, you know, the, the quarterback took the snap. They, they blitzed. They're coming in on them. He's scrambling. He's getting further and further back from the line of scrimmage. They're about to sack him. And he looks up. And way down the field, he sees one of his receivers just barely open. And he lobs that thing. And it sails through the air. And the the receiver goes up. And with one hand, he catches it. Well, two defenders crash into him. And he brings it down. And when you see that, you're like, that? That was beautiful. That was amazing. Now, if you're by yourself when you see it, like, yeah, it was so good. But it's so much better if you're with someone else who also sees it and appreciates it, right? You're like, did you see that? Can you believe that? And you're high-fiving and you're jumping up and down and, and you're offering them more of your chips that you weren't offering before. And I mean, you can't help but, but want to share it with him. And if, if your buddy wasn't there, or if your friend wasn't there to see it, you, you show him on your phone, you got to see this play. Why? Why? This is what C.S. Lewis asks. And here's what he, the answer he has. He says this. I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy 
because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. That's what he's talking about when it comes to worship. Moses says, I have to sing. I can't help but sing. When I think of what God has done for me, when I think of what he got, has done for us, I can't help but, but sing it. And I want everyone to join me because it completes my enjoyment. It, it, it's the fulfillment of what I have done. Oh, what, not what I've done, but what God has done. He says, I want to worship together with you because of what God has done for us. See, this is why we worship. Worship is a response to God's goodness in our lives, to, to what God has done. It's an outflowing of thanksgiving to God for what he's done in our lives. You know, again, if you find your worship stale, kind of cold, it may be that, that you have forgotten or taken for granted what it is that God has done in your life. Sometimes, especially for us who live in a Western consumer society, sometimes we've replaced gratitude with a consumer mindset when it comes to God. I mean, we, we, God, we, we want you to provide this for us. We need you to fix this for us. God, we want you to make us feel better. But you see, that, that's not the source of worship in our life. No, no, no. Gratitude for what he has done. That's the source of worship in our lives. And so if you're struggling with, with worship, again, what you need, check your heart. And what is your attitude towards God? What, what is it that, that you're thinking of? This is what Moses does. He starts with his sense of incredible gratitude for what God has done. And now listen now to the things that he focuses on in his worship. In verse 3, he says this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, you know, we've talked about this already. Anywhere where the word Lord is capitalized like that, it literally is referring to God's personal name, to the name Yahweh, which means I am. In other words, what, what Moses is, is pointing out, what he is worshiping is the fact that God is the eternal creator of heaven and earth. That God always has been, always will be, and always is. And he says, the Lord is a warrior. In other words, he, he is the one who will lead them into battle. He is the one who will, who will fight for them, who will ensure their survival. It was the Lord who would Tell them where it was that they were to battle and where not to. And they were not to have any other allies. No dependencies on any other foreign powers. No confidence in any other deliverer. They were just to trust in God himself. And, and he goes on to, to say this about, about him. He says in verse 4, he says, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the sea. He, he reminds those who are singing that, that what God defeated was not, was not the reservists was not the, the second sort of backstring, the second rank fighters who made some sort of mistake and kind of paid for it with their life. No, no, he reminds them that who God defeated were Pharaoh's best soldiers. And because Pharaoh had the greatest army in the ancient world, it was the greatest of the greatest that he, uh, the, of their enemies that God destroyed. And in the next verses, he goes on to say that even the mighty sea was under God's control. Moses points out the utter power the incredible majesty, the, the ultimate strength of God. That's what they worship. And then in verse 7, they sing this. He says this, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like a stubble. 
Now he celebrates God's wrath and his justice. That's part of their worship. They worship God because he sends his wrath. He, because he is God of justice. Now he's always so patient. 80 plus years easily, he waited for the Egyptians to repent and to let the people of Israel go. But, but when they wouldn't, God eventually and always punishes sin and evil, and they worship him for it. And then in, in verse 11, he goes on to celebrate the uniqueness and the supremacy of God above all other gods. He says this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. And then he celebrates the, the holiness and the goodness of God. He says this, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in your glorious deeds, doing wonders. And then in verse 13, he says this, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. He worships God for his love. And that word love there again, this is a Hebrew word, the word hesed, which literally talks about the covenant keeping, absolute faithfulness and loyalty of God to his people. He says, God, I worship you because of your love and your faithfulness towards us. And the whole song goes on that way. And here's what we need to see about worship. And that's this, worship is utterly theocentric. Theo meaning God. True worship is utterly God-focused in every way. You read this whole psalm, song of worship, not a word about the people of Israel. Not a word about their patience while they waited patiently for God to, to rescue them. About their obedience. Nothing about their courage or, or their faithfulness. Nothing. And nothing about Moses and everything that he did to see the people of Israel come to freedom. It's utterly unlike the pagan songs of that day where they gladly self-congratulated themselves for their great and mighty works. And of course, utterly nothing like the songs of our day, which are all about me and how I feel and what I experience and, and what I think. And again, nothing against the songs of our day. I listen to them, I enjoy them, but that's not what worship is. Worship is not about us. We're participants in worship. We're part of the story of what God has done. So, excuse me, so we sing about us, but never as the hero always in response to what God has done for us and, and what he is doing. You know, it, worship isn't about what we have done. Worship, true worship, the worship of God is always utterly God-focused. It's a response to who God is. You know, Moses, he, he sings this song. He teaches it to the people of Israel. Miriam picks it up. She teaches it to, to the ladies. They, they worship using this song. And it turns out that this song becomes part of the soundtrack of the people of Israel. It's sung or, or referred to in every, in every uh, Sabbath celebration from that time to this very day. In fact, to this very day, our Jewish friends still sing or refer to this song during the, the, during the Passover and during the Sabbath. In fact, it's sung at the Passover at that very moment when the lamb is sacrificed on behalf of the people. It became part of the soundtrack of the people of Israel, part of their lives. The same is true for us. You know, our worship, our worship should become part of the soundtrack of our lives. Do you know that before the Reformation, in the, in the late 1400s and before that, um, uh, in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the people were forbidden to sing the liturgical songs of worship outside of the Sunday morning worship service. But when the reformers came, people like uh, 
Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and others, they came, they read the words of the apostle in Colossians 3 where he said this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so they wrote songs that were meant to spill out of the, out of the, the, the worship of God's people on a Sunday morning, spill into their public lives. And so they encouraged Christians to whistle the songs at work, to sing them at school, to, to, to repeat them when they had meals together. They were to be the soundtrack of their lives. The same is true for us. Now, you're probably not singing worship songs in the middle of your school or probably not whistling them at work, maybe. Probably not singing them before you, you know, have a meal. But songs of worship should be, they should be on your phone. They should be on your Spotify list. They, they should be on, if you, I mean, you're old school, they should be on your CDs somewhere. Now, you should listen to all kinds of different songs. You listen to all kinds of things. But the soundtrack of your life, the soundtrack sort of running behind all that should be regular diet of worship songs, worship to God. And here's why. Because worship, true worship, causes us to love. Uh, theologian, philosopher uh, James K.A. Smith, he argues this, that our most fundamental identity, our behavior flows primarily out of what we love. In fact, Augustine, the, the great church father, he made the same argument. He, he said this, such is each one as is his love. I said it in the old way, but in other words, what he's saying is this, what you attach yourself to, what you Worship becomes what you love, and what you love defines who you are. Thinking, arguments, beliefs, they're all crucial in shaping our heart, but the most powerful thing that shapes us is what it is that we worship, and we become what we adore. We are what captures our imaginations, what leads us to praise it, and to compel others to praise it as well. And that means for us, for we who Follow Jesus. The object of our love should be God himself. God should be our supreme love in our lives. If we make anything else the primary love in our lives, if we worship something else more than God, whatever it is that we love more, whatever it is that we worship more, we'll ultimately, we will ultimately crush that because it can't hold up under the weight of our expectations. And when we crush it under our expectations, in turn, it will break our hearts. Look, if we, if we are what we love, it means that we should make worship the soundtrack of our lives. We should listen to worship music regularly. I mean, again, listen to all kinds of other music, but find a type of worship, a style that works for you that you love. I mean, whatever style it is that you like, whether it's hymns or, or, or rap or, or however it is that, that you worship best, I mean, listen to that at home and on your phone and, and in your car and crank it up loud and worship to that. And then when you come and join us together here as the people of God, then let's sing together corporately to worship that God has given us to celebrate his goodness and his wonder as we gather together. The song of Moses, the song sung on that day when they arrived on the other side of the Red Sea became the soundtrack for, for centuries for the people of of Israel. And in fact, it will become part of the soundtrack in heaven. The Apostle John, 
You know, this was the guy who had this vision of what will happen at the end of the time. He writes it down in the book of Revelation. And at one point, here's what he writes. He says, then I saw another sign in heaven. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast in its image standing beside the sea of glass. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. It's fascinating. In heaven, in heaven, John sees the people of God, those who've given their life to follow Jesus, singing the song of Moses, he says, in the song of the Lamb. They become one song. It's the same song, but if you read it, it's a bit of an updated version of that song. And it's updated, it's, it's sung with new vigor and new meaning because Jesus, the Passover Lamb, was slain. And what he accomplished was so much greater than even the salvation of the people from, from slavery in Egypt. Because what Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross led to the salvation of people from every language and every tongue and every tribe and every nation before God. And they come and they worship him because he has set them free from the power of sin and, and evil and death. John says this, he says, I listened as they sang this song. He says, and I saw where they sang it. They, they sang it by a sea. The question is, why? why? Why are they singing it by this sea? And the answer is because the sea in Revelation symbolizes the same thing it did in the book of Exodus. It, it symbolized the powers of darkness, chaos, and death. And he says, those who follow Jesus, when they stand in heaven, they sing this song, this song of salvation, the song of Moses and of the Lamb. They sing it by the sea. And they sing it there because they are proclaiming over the sea, over the powers of darkness and chaos, that God himself is sovereign even over them. And that the lamb by, that was slain by his blood ultimately will conquer even that, even the dark forces of darkness. See, that's why we worship now. That's why we will worship in heaven. Because, because Jesus is victorious over all. And if we worship now imperfectly as we do, and it brings us this sense of, of fulfillment and joy as we do it, imagine what, what it'll be like when we worship perfectly in the presence of the very one to whom our worship is due. I mean, if now it brings us a sense of fulfillment and completion, then when we worship perfectly in that day, the sense of joy and completion and fulfillment, it will be unlike anything we've ever experienced on this earth. When we worship in heaven, it's not going to be some long, boring, kind of stale, kind of dry worship service that we can't wait till it's done because we want to get on to something else. Oh no, it will be more rich and more beautiful and more fulfilling and more meaningful than anything you've ever experienced in this life. Listen, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, you should. I mean, in this series in Exodus, God has just revealed to him himself to us in so many incredible ways. He is a God who hears the cries of his people and doesn't ignore them. He responds. He comes to rescue them. And he is a God who calls people like Moses, people with broken pasts and who had run away. He calls them to follow him and he gives them meaning and purpose and he walks with them. And he is a God who is sovereign over everything, over all of creation, all of the universe, but also over what happens in our lives, both when things are going good and when things are going bad. And he is a God who is just 
and who punishes evil and sin, but who always makes a way of salvation for those who turn to him. And he is a God who loves his people, who is utterly faithful to them, who is in a covenant relationship with them, who will never abandon them, no matter what they do, no matter what happens in their life. He is a God who is utterly worthy of our praise and worship. If you don't know that God, I mean, you should give your life to follow him. Every other God in this world, every other idol will demand of you so much until you finally wreck yourself trying to fulfill the demands of that God. Whether it's money or power or relationships or fame or any other God you can think of out there. But not Yahweh. Not not the, the true God. No, no, his is about grace and love and mercy and salvation for you and bringing you out of that place and filling that thing in your heart that is so missing, that is longing for something. Look, if you want to know God in your life, it's not that difficult. It's done through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and who paid the price for the things that we've done against God. He, Jesus, is like the Passover lamb. He's the one who who is sacrificed so that when the wrath of God that is due for us because of our rebellion against him, when the wrath comes, he passes over. We don't experience that wrath because Jesus takes it in our place. So if you want to know God, if you want God in your life, look, here's what you need to do. You just need to talk to him. It's prayer. And you can do it silently. You can do it out loud. And you just need to say, God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I've done things against you, that I've done things against how holy you are that deserve punishment. God, I I confess that that's who I am, and I repent. God, I want to turn from those ways. And I accept what Jesus did for me through his death on the cross so that I don't have to bear that punishment. I, I, I accept who Jesus is. And I believe, God, that you raised him from the dead, and I commit to follow Jesus all the days of my life. If you do that, if you do that, God will come in and he will dwell in your life. God himself, by the power of his spirit, and you will dwell in him. And he will lead you in this life. And he will fill that thing that's just always looking for something else. And in the end, he will lead you to worship. Worship out of incredible gratitude for who he is and what he has done. Would you, would you bow your head with me? Let, let's pray. Let's pray together. God, you are just so utterly Amazing. God, you are so above us in every, every possible way. And yet you're so good and you're so faithful. And you would save us. You would rescue us from ourselves, from the, from the sin and evil in this world, from, the, from wickedness, from, from death, ultimately, God. Give us eternal life. And so, God, this day we worship you. God, we adore you. God, we praise you. And this thing of worship that you've created in us to do that just, that just flows out of us because we are the creature and you're the creator. Oh God, forgive us when we turn our worship primarily to something else. God, forgive us when we don't make you the primary place for our worship in our life. And God, where our worship has sometimes been stale and distant and cold, Father, forgive us. God, lead us back to a place of a rich relationship with you a rich place of being together. And Father, you call us to worship together. 
And that means that it's not always exactly the way we like it. And Father, we understand that for all of us, we, we, we need to honor one another and adjust as we go along. Lord, give us the grace as we do that. So that, Father, as we lift our voices together, Lord, that you'll be glorified, that we would be edified, that people would be drawn to you, that your name would be lifted high. And so, God, we, we lift our voices again. We thank and we bless you and we worship you because of who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.